0: Amen. Amen. Good morning. It is very good to see you uh, on this Sabbath morning. It's such a, such a privilege that we have uh, to be together, uh, worshiping together. It's such a privilege that we have just to worship the Lord freely uh, in this place. And so it's, 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 it's no, no surprise um, that God calls us to these places um, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Haggai, and Haggai's probably not something that you've been diving into lately, but it might be, it might be. Uh, Haggai is at the end of the Old Testament, so probably the easiest way to find it is go to Matthew, and then go back past Malachi, and then you get to Zechariah, and then Haggai and Zephaniah. So Haggai's right there between the Zs, okay? Uh, so uh, go to Haggai, it's only two chapters long, two short chapters, we're going to read the first chapter chapter, but we're going to dive into a, a bit of, of both of those. I'm looking forward, uh, as we, we dial down this, um, this great series in Christ and the Minor Prophets, such a beautiful thing to discover our Lord uh, in the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. Next Sunday, Pastor Jim Ferguson is going to open up Zechariah for us. Really excited about that. The weekend after that, uh, Nathan is going to finish up Uh, with the the book of Malachi. Uh, I'm Harrison Spittler by the way, pastor of adult ministries here at EP. Will you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, Father, Abba Father, Lord, you are not some distant, far off God. You are God, still very God of very God, creator of the heavens and the earth, but you're our God, you're personal. Jesus called you Abba, Father. The Lord, you're our Abba, Father. Lord, I pray this morning as, as we open up your word uh, that we would grasp how uh, holy you are, how huge you are, and yet how personal you are. Father, I pray that you would calm our hearts and transform us. Father, I confess that uh, this morning I do not feel uh, worthy to open your word. Uh, and yet I am, I am excited and thrilled to know that even though I am not worthy, you have bid me to come into the throne room of grace with freedom and confidence. I'm excited to know again and be reminded again in this text that you dwell here with us, with me, that you have promised to be in our midst. So Father, I pray that you would use this broken vessel to pour out your beautiful, life-transforming, clear, clean water for our soul. Transform our thirsty souls in Jesus' name, amen. Malachi, or not Malachi, Haggai. Uh, Haggai um, not spoken of much in the Old Testament. You see him a little bit in the New Testament where this passage is quoted, but you don't, you don't see him much at all. He was a prophet uh, in the 500s, so some 2,500-something uh, years ago, Haggai was writing and prophesying at about the time of... Uh, of Zechariah and Ezra and um, uh, Zerubbabel. So he, he, he takes this, this passage, he's going to read the first chapter, but he's writing it from God to Zerubbabel, the, the governor or the, the leader, governmental leader of, of Judah, and to, uh, to Joshua, uh, the son of Jehosadak the high priest. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, in the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and on beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltil, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. May God bless this reading, hearing, and teaching of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. Amen. I would say that the people of Judah were distracted somewhat. Wouldn't you say so? God had said, this is what I want you to do. And they said, we're going to build our paneled houses instead. Do you ever get distracted? Do you ever get so distracted that you find yourself uh, not following what God has called you to do? So distracted that you, you look up one day and you realize that you haven't given God a thought that day or maybe even that week. Do You ever get that distracted? I do, it's easy for us to get distracted, isn't it? When I was uh, pastoring First Presbyterian Church in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, our kids were in school at Eastwood Classical Christian School at Eastwood Presbyterian Church there. Uh, and uh, it was a, a fairly young school and they decided during that time frame that they wanted to stop, start a soccer program. And so they asked me and and Jeff, uh, a friend, to start this soccer program. That, That was hard for me. I grew up in Alabama. We didn't play soccer in those days in Alabama. The only football we played was this round, or this oblong brown thing with white stripes on both ends and laces down the middle. And we were good at that kind of football. We didn't need soccer. The only people that need soccer are those that aren't good at football. I'm kidding. I'm kidding i've I've grown to love soccer i really have a lot Uh, i had kids a lot a lot of kids that played soccer but in those days i knew nothing about soccer in fact the only soccer i think i'd ever seen was probably uh in in the olympics every four years i if they even played it then i don't don't know i didn't know much about soccer and they said we want you to want you to start a soccer program and so they sent jeff and i to this clinic to learn what soccer was all about Which is funny Um, and then they they taught us how to coach soccer, which was really funny And then they gave us seven four and (laughs) five-year-olds Oh, Talk about starting small These kids were so much fun We called it soccer, but you could have called it amoeba ball because they they worked in a pack Just like this all the way down the field and somewhere in that pack in the middle of it was a soccer ball these kids were so much fun. Uh, they, um, and they were such sweet kids, such obedient kids, that they refused to take the ball from each other, even in practice, or from the other team, because that was, taking so, that was taking something away from somebody. So we had to call a team meeting with the parents, and I had to ask the parents, would you please give your children permission to take the ball away? And so once they learned that, they were off to the races. Um, no one scored on us that year. I mean, it's not that we just won every game; we won every game big by the mercy rule, uh, but no one scored on us. And it wasn't because of the coach. <laughs> I think soccer was just new in Montgomery at the time. We were so good at, at, at that that the uh, our goalie would get bored. I mean, no one wanted to be goalie because it was such a boring job. I remember one one game midway through the season. Um, All our parents were at one end of the field because that's where all the action took place. Uh, And uh, and suddenly the other team got the ball somehow and they're breaking away and they cross the midpoint line of the field and they're heading towards our goal with the ball. And everyone turns around to look at our goal where Dalton the goalie was, except Dalton wasn't there. (laughs) Dalton was gone. You look off the distance and Dalton is about a hundred yards away over by the creek, picking clover. (laughs) He's gone. He'd gotten gotten bored and he'd gotten distracted. and It was so funny because all the parents, all at once, in unison, scream out, DALTON! It scared the other team so much they missed their shot. (laughs) Which is good because Dalton was distracted. Dalton wasn't there, you see. We get distracted so easily. You do and I do, and obviously Dalton did. Um, what distracts you? Is it the pretty things in life like clover or flowers or you know, a creek, each other? Is it opposition? Is it fear? Is it things you love and things you fear? What, what distracts you in, in life? The people here in, in Judah and Palestine, did, They were distracted from what God had told them to do. Around 538 BC, 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, had had issued an edict, a decree, that they should go back from Babylon back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And he gave them funds to do that. He gave them the orders to do that. He told others, other nations, "Don't, don't hinder them from doing that. And they went back and they got started building. They wanted to collect the wood and the stones and stuff. But they they only built for a little while and then they became distracted. They were distracted by opposition from without. Other nations that were, were fighting against them that didn't want the temple of the Lord rebuilt. And they were distracted by opposition from within as there was infighting about how to do it and should we do it and when should we do it and where should we do it. And more than that, how should we do this while we're also taking care of ourselves? while we're also taking care of me, 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 me. And so they built, built their houses. And the Lord says, says here in the, in the first chapter in verse four, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled house while this house lies in ruins? It wasn't just they built houses, my friends, not just you know, adobe walls with a thatched roof, they built paneled houses. The, the, the type of paneling would have been a, a highly polished uh, wooden walls with elegant trim and the, the panel would have been on the ceiling as well so there would have been these beautiful paneled very elaborate homes that they had built while well, the Lord's house was in ruins not only did they build their panelled houses they planted fields they planted, planted crops and they planted vineyards and, and they had grapes growing up and, and wheat that was growing up everything was looking good on the outside except the Lord's house was in ruins and, and God's not, not excited about that to say the least in much the same way that they had become they, they had become distracted we become distracted we let situations, we let people we let life get in the way of following Christ verse 2 thus says the Lord of hosts these people say these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Did they say it with their mouths? Probably. Did they say it out loud to each other? Probably. They probably sat around and they, they took a vote. Do we rebuild the house of the Lord? And, and, and at some point somebody said, no, let's wait. And they said it out loud. And they put off building the house of the Lord. And they busied themselves their paneled homes and their crops and their fields. They spent their time and their money and their energy and their passion on themselves and on their own plans, on their own priorities, and they left the Lord aside. Basically, what they said was, they said, life revolves around me, me. Francis Schaeffer and it's what the God who is there, and they said, regardless of man's system, man's, uh, man's world, man's government, regardless of man's system, he has to live in God's world. We forget that. He has to live in God's world. God is the one that has created the heavens and the earth. God is the world that has created you, He has created me. God is the one that, that has saved us through Jesus Christ. God is the one that we stand before on that final day. God, this is God's world. This is God's universe. This is God's, he is God and you are not, I am not. He has not elected us as the fourth person of the Trinity. He doesn't need our help. It's not that he is lucky to have us on his team even. This is God's world, and how quickly we forget. So where do we lose focus on the Lord and grow complacent, as these Israelites did in this case? How do we grow complacent? The big word the big word there is worship. This is the big answer, where do we grow complacent? We grow complacent in the things we worship, in the people we, we worship. So worship means to ascribe worth. And it's not just a, um, a one-hour or one-hour and 15-minute thing that you do on Sundays, or in this case, also on Saturday afternoons. It's not just that, that one hour out of 168 that we, we worship. Worship is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, now true, there's that, that corporate time when we come together, uh, you know, once a week, and, and, and that's a beautiful time, and it's that time where... We're, we're, we're told to not forsake the fellowship of the together of the saints. God calls us together to this place. But that's not the only time we worship. That gives, gives meaning and a launching spot and a, an understanding and a foundation for the rest of the week. And then we come to the end of the week and we come back to this time of corporate worship together. And we have that place where we, we're able to make sense again of all that's been going on in the week before. And we build one another up and we equip, equip one another in in the lord and we follow him in a new way as we as we're as we're encouraged by the community the corporate body of believers the bride of jesus christ but this worship is something that happens in every single part of our life we will worship something everybody will worship something whether you're a believer in jesus christ or not listen if you're not here if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in jesus christ i can tell you even you you're worshiping Something. You're worshiping someone, even if it's like the Israelites were in this place, just worshiping yourself. We worship something. And that something, that someone that we worship gives meaning and and direction, boundaries even to our to our life. Where do we we get distracted? Let me give you some some examples here. The worship. Let's talk about pre-COVID, okay? Pre-COVID and, and post-COVID. Pre-COVID, um, before anyone said "go home" and and you can only have this many people in the building. Before that, that happened. Uh, even then, uh, worship in America was changing. There was a time when when church attendance in, in the United States uh, was an important part of every week. It's it was a center part of the central part of everyone's life. Uh, and so if you were a believer, if you were in a church, a church would consider you an an active member of that church. If you were there, uh, three to four Sundays a month, uh, and then some during the week even. Then it went down to, well, you know, let's lower the bar. You're only an active member if you're there, maybe two Sundays a month. And then, uh, then maybe once during the week, maybe. And, And then, you know, now it's, it's changed to where, Um, these people that make these words up and these little stories and blogs they, they they said you're an active member in a church if you're there once once a month once once a month it's gotten to where it doesn't hold that same place in our life that worship together is a body of believers now I want you to notice that here in the book of Haggai God is speaking to the body the whole body of believers not just to one individual or one individual here, one individual there. He's speaking to them as a body. We're a body of believers, my friends. But we get distracted, and we let other things get in the way. What gets in the way? Well, maybe what gets in the way is um, vacation. Everybody needs vacation. Vacation is a great thing. We go on vacation, we go on another vacation, we go on lots of vacations. Before long, you know, we're going on vacation on Sunday morning. We haven't left the house Maybe not, we haven't even left our pillow, but we're going on vacation from worshiping with a body of believers. Uh, one of the greatest things that's gotten in the way would be, um, would be athletics. You know, it, it used to be that in athletics, uh, you know, little league teams didn't take place on Sundays and it didn't take place on Wednesdays. And now there, there, are, no, there are no boundaries. So my, my friends, listen, um, when 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 you take parents listen when you take your kids and you you take your kids to their um, their baseball travel clubs on sunday mornings and their lacrosse tournaments on sunday mornings you know and their soccer tournaments on sunday mornings and you you, you begin to let those things take the place of worship together with the body of christ on sunday mornings what you're teaching them what you as parents are teaching your children is that those things are more important than worshiping with the body of Christ. Don't be surprised then if when they grow up and they're 18 or 19 and they leave your home, that worship with the body of Christ is not an important part of their life because you've taught them that it's not an important part of their life. That's not to say that lacrosse and soccer and baseball are not important. They're great, they're fine, they're fun, they're important. I've got seven kids, we do sports. We have a blast with sports, I get that. But when we teach our kids that those things are more important than worship with the body of Christ, what we're actually teaching them is those things are more important than the Lord and their own relationship with Him. And that's what they catch. So let's take it away from, from just the parents and kids thing. The same thing happens with you and me. We make choices. We make choices about how we're going to spend our time, our money, where we're going to go on a Sunday morning, or late even on a Saturday afternoon. And, and when we decide that you know we're going to go to this ball game or that ball game, or we're going to spend you know this this weekend on on the lake or on the bay, and by the way, the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And the next one. All those things are good in and of themselves, but when they begin to replace worship together with the body of Christ, then we've done the same thing we have said. Those things are more important than my worship of the Lord. Those things are more important than the Lord himself. That's what God is telling the the church, the Old Testament church in Haggai. He's saying, you've said that your paneled houses and you're planting of vineyards. Your crops are more important than your worship of me. And God has said, I will take those things down. There's a, you say, and then there's a, God says. We do it with our worship, with corporate body. We do it with our our giving. We do it with our work. We do it with our time. All those things are important, I get it. I get it. Work, work's important, but when, when work so monopolizes our time and our energy and our passions that we, we're not worshiping the Lord, then work has become our God. Work can be energizing. Uh, for me, uh, work was a way of um, well, it was a way of getting kudos, it was a way of getting pats on the back, you know and, I remember it was re- I was uh, working for a um, a, uh, a restaurant chain right out of college, and um, they had 215 restaurants, and, and they gave me the one that was um, like right close to the bottom. I think it was like I don't know 213 out of 215 in profits because they had never earned a dollar in profit. Uh, and they said, "We want you to take this restaurant and we want you to make it profitable for the first time ever." And I loved the challenge and, because I thought, well, there's kudos and there's the challenge. There's something I you know, pour myself into. And so I did. And six months later, we were earning lots of profit. We were positive in, in net profits. We had lines out the door. You know, it was a waiting list. It was, it was a, great, a great gig. But here's the thing. I was working 100 hours a week. I was working 100 hours a week. And my spiritual life was in shambles. I had let the kudos that I was getting from that success become my God. It happens to all of us. What do you let become your God? That's the thing that you have let distract you from your worship of our Lord. Nancy Piercy, a student of Francis Schaeffer, in her book Total Truth, beautiful book, wonderful book. It's not not light reading. It's about this thick, and it's power-packed from beginning to end. Great book, though. Um, She writes of the the public-private dichotomy something that uh, you know, really came up out of the Enlightenment, uh, pushed ahead by universities, uh, mandated by governments, that, and basically what it said was that your faith has to be private. Keep your faith private. In your own little world, you can, you can talk about your faith, but not in the public sphere. In the public sphere, there shall be no faith, which is a faith in itself, but let's not go there. Um, <laughs> There, your faith will be private. And so the universities taught it. The government mandated it. Public-private dichotomy. What, what's scary is that if Nancy Piercy were, were looking at this today and writing that book today, she, would, she could leave that chapter out because we have bought into that. The church in America has bought into that. Wholesale. We have taken the bait, hook, line, and sinker. We're doing the work of the public-private dichotomy voluntarily. The church in America has has privatized our faith, and we don't see it in the public sphere anymore. Some of us do as individuals, but for the most part, it's missing. We voluntarily privatize it. The Old Testament Church in Haggai had done the same thing, my friends. We're no different from them. There's a you say, and then there's a the Lord says, uh, verse seven of chapter one. Thus says the Lord of Hosts: Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Says the Lord. And he says, you looked for much; behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while H.E.V. busies himself with his own house. I, the Lord says, did you know, listen, 29 different times in these short two chapters, 29 times we read, "I, I the Lord say, or the Lord says, or the Lord declares, or thus saith the Lord, or something like that. 29 times in two chapters. It would take about four and a half to five minutes to read those two chapters. Can you imagine having a five-minute conversation with someone where 29 times you say, I say, I say, I declare to you, thus saith me, this, this saith I. You need to, did you think they'd get the message? They would get the message. The Lord is saying to the people of, of Palestine in this place, get the message. I, the Lord, am telling you not to be distracted any longer. Get busy building my house. God's had enough. 29 times he says, thus saith the Lord, it declares the Lord. The word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord has come down and he wants them to get the message. He's saying you're spending your life, your very life building your own houses and your fields as if it's all about you, but it's not all about you. Life is all about me, says the Lord. Build my house. Otherwise it will come true. And he goes on, he says, I'm going to shake it. I'm going to shake the heavens, and the earth, He says, I'm going to bring it to ruin. You look in your vats and there's no wine there. You look in, you, you, you make money and you put it in bags, but the bags have holes in them. You're working so hard to build yourself up and make yourself awesome. And you're putting all this effort into all these things. But when you look at your coffers, you'll see that they're empty because I have made it that way. My friends, that is a very kind thing for God to do. Isn't that kind? That God would shake them in that way and bring them back to Him? Hebrews tells us the Lord disciplines those that He loves. It is kind that God shakes them if that's what He has to do to keep them from falling away from Him. We lived in France. We were uh, traveling to the Mediterranean and we're driving our little minivan uh, up this a steep mountain road. And, and it fell away on both sides. It was gravel. It was one lane. And so, I don't know, it seemed like it was barely wide enough for a motorcycle, much less a minivan. It was probably two or three lanes wide, but um, I didn't like heights, still don't. And it, it fell away on both sides, probably three or 400,000 feet, you know? And, and, and there were no, no guardrails on either side, okay? And did I mention it? it was graveled, it was going straight up? And so by the time we get to the top, I think my fingers might have needed to be pried off the steering wheel. They were white knuckled. They were white knuckled, weren't they? they were and so um one of our children was more adventurous than the others and i knew what would happen is we stopped at the top of that cliff which had no guardrail in it either this individual would be going to the very edge to lean over the edge to see what they could see and 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 i wanted to do the same thing sort of but there, the the sailboats the large sailboats at the bottom were so far away they looked like ants i mean it was it was it literally was probably a couple thousand feet down or, or more I told that that particular child, before I let that child out of the car, I'm gonna hold your hand, and if you let go of my hand, I will break your fingers. (laughs) Now, would I have really broken that child's fingers? No, but the thing is, the thing is, I knew that that child needed me, that child's father, that child's Abba Father, to keep that child from getting too close to the edge of the cliff. that's what God is doing here in, in, in Haggai. He's saying, you're too close to the edge of the cliff, my children, and I'm going to bring to ruin those things you're working on so that you'll return to me because that's where the joy really is. God is saying to them, the whole universe, time, space, matter, everything, everything in it belongs to me. I am God and you are not. How did they respond? How would you respond? We see in verse 12 that the whole remnant of Israel The whole remnant responded in faith and began to build the house of the Lord. And they finished it in about four years, starting in about 520 B.C. They finished the temple of the Lord. They responded to God's word. Thus says the Lord. How do you respond to God's word? How do you respond? And how do you respond even today? Let me tell you what God said to them after they began that response, after they began to re- rebuild. He goes back. This is in four. Haggai's built in, 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 in oracles, uh, little snippets of conversation. The Lord says this, the Lord says this, the Lord says this. So in, in this next part in chapter two, we're not going to read it all, but I want to give you a sense of what it says. He's telling them about his covenant promise to them. He gives them four things in this covenant as a reminder of the covenant promise. He speaks of his presence, he speaks of his peace. He speaks of his provision and he speaks of his promise. Four things. After he has said that I'm going to shake you, it's going to be good. In chapter 2, in verse, verse 5, he mentions the covenant. He said, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, listen, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Even though these people had not obeyed God previously and built his house, even though they built their paneled houses and done all these other things, God's reminded them, because of my covenant that I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt, I have remained. The whole time, I have remained in your midst. I have never left you. I have been with you the whole time. Even when you walked away from me, I still hung with you. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse verse 7, or verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That's everything, folks. Heavens, earth, sea, dry land. I will shake it all. And then verse 7, I will shake all nations, so the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. The glory coming is greater than the glory that used to be, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There's a greater glory coming. This, this, this new house, this new temple, he says, is greater than the old temple. Now, what we know from other places in the Old Testament is that this, this new temple, they were dismayed by this new temple. It wasn't as grand and glorious physically as the former temple. There was something missing about it. It just wasn't that exciting. There wasn't that much guilt. There wasn't that much gold. There wasn't that much polished wood and marble. It it, it wasn't as glorious as a formal one if you look at it just in a physical sense. So what's God saying? He's saying there's a greater and more glorious and a grander temple coming. That grander and more glorious temple is none other than Jesus Christ. And he says to them, in this temple, I will give you peace. There's going to be peace coming. Fear not, I'm with you i'm in your presence and i'm bringing you peace it's a promise of the messiah to come there's yeah i'm going to shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land but there's a a time coming where nothing will be shaken again where what is coming will be more glorious we see in john chapter 1 and verse 14 for we have beheld his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth speaking of jesus christ glory there's glory in, in Jesus. And then in, in, in Hebrews in chapter 1, he speaks of this, this glorious one again, beginning in verse 3 in Hebrews. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs the glorious one is none other than jesus christ that he speaks of and that is the one that 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 cannot be shaken again in hebrews in chapter 12 beginning in verse 12 this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He is the one that is worthy of our reverence and our awe and our worship. He is the one that cannot be shaken, and he builds a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The stuff of earth is shaken and and does not last. He gives us presence. He gives us peace. He also gives us his provision, his blessing, even now. Look again at verse— In chapter 2, beginning in verse, verse 14, then Haggai answered and he said, so it is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. He's saying all the worship that you're offering me, it's unclean, it's defiled. So what's God gonna do about that? now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord before they did anything on the temple how did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures there were but 10 when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures there were 20 I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and hail yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, is a seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. You've done this work with defiled hands, and the work of your hands has produced nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. My friends, that blows apart everything this world thinks they know about God this we live often I live often as if the work of my hands is what causes God to love me I do it you do it we do it the world does it Adam and Eve did it we do it that we can somehow earn favor with God by the work of our hands we do this right he's gonna bless us we worship right he'll bless us we worship wrong he won't bless us we forget to have a quiet time we're doomed for the day we have a great quiet time, oh, the Lord's gonna bless me today, what a surprise when the day unfolds and that doesn't happen. All these things were going wrong and yet the Lord said, I will bless you, I will provide. God calls us to something higher and deeper than our earthly goals and he provides something more satisfying than our successes. Fourth thing we see, there's a promise, in verse 23, chapter two. On that, that day, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shelthil, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts, my servant. He calls calls o Zerubbabel my servant. Same thing he called Moses, same thing he called David my servant. God had removed the signet ring from the house of David because of their sin. And here it is, he's giving it back to Zerubbabel. What he's saying is that out of you is coming a Messiah, the one that is this promised, glorious temple, the one that does bring this peace, this Messiah. He's coming from you, Zerubbabel. I'm reminding you of the temple that's coming. His name is Jesus. There's a promise, my friends. It's not something that we've earned, it's something that God has blessed us with. It's easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's easy to get distracted by our fear, Uh, easy to get distracted by pandemics, uh, by politics, by power, by pain, by sin, addictions. It's so easy for you and I to get distracted from the Lord as if somehow he is dead. But we have a God that loves us so intensely that when we walk away in distraction, he disciplines us That that's what it takes to bring us back because he is a kind and loving father. The Lord uses the words in Haggai from this day on, from this day on, from this day on. So I would use those words with you as well. From this day on, from this day on, do not be distracted any longer by the stuff of earth. From this day on, let the Lord God be your God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make it so in our lives. Father, there's so much here that distracts us father there's so much that that we run after and we chase yet lord you are you 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 are one that is at once just and merciful at once holy and full of grace father would you pour your grace and your mercy out on your people lord would you give us the courage um, the spirit father to follow you again and again and again and anew renewed every day by the gospel of jesus christ Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has never met you, I pray that that changes even now. Lord, that they would look to you and they would say, Lord God, be my God. Forgive me for the distractions. Forgive me for the stuff I've chased. Be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin, Lord. And be my God. In Jesus' name.